Welcome to Mercy Street Church Podcast. My name is Jerry Wagner, founder and lead pastor of Mercy Street Church in Dallas, Texas. Thank you so much for tuning in to our podcast. Our desire is to unleash healthy disciple makers in West Dallas to reach the world. God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing to listen to new messages every week. Have a God-filled day. You are joining us on the very last sermon of our Matthew series. And uh, how many have enjoyed the Matthew series? Has it been great? Amen. I want to just give a hand to the preaching team. So Phil and Becca, are you in here? Phil and Becca, can you raise your hands? Hi. Okay, Phil and Becca, Pastor Jerry, uh, Waldo, and then Ryan and myself. Uh, we spent a lot of time considering this series and have really loved being able to participate in it. Uh, but 7 a.m. on Wednesdays, we've been working through it, and so it took a lot of work. Um, Phil and Becca are people who don't get a lot as much credit. They don't get to, they haven't gotten up here to preach it, but they have put a lot of time into it. I do want to recognize them for that. Amen. Well, let's pray, and then we're going to dive right into uh, our text today. Thank you, Father, that you have given us the gospel according to Matthew. Thank you that you have given us the scriptures. Lord, you say in Matthew, through your Son, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Lord, I pray today that we be fed. That our stomachs, our hearts, our minds would be full with the things of Christ. That we walk away from here satisfied in Jesus and His good reign. That we walk away from here with hearts that are full to do the actions that you called us to do. Lord, and so we pray today that your grace would be upon your word and through the speaking of your word. We pray that our hearts would be receptive. We pray that you would help us to understand and that those who don't know Jesus today as their king, that they'd walk away from here changed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we're looking at one of the most famous passages in Scripture, particularly the New Testament. It's the Great Commission. It's probably one of the most treasured passages in the conservative evangelical realm. If you grew up in a church that really valued the Scriptures, you probably heard of it. And even if you didn't, you probably have heard of the Great Commission. If you've heard of the Great Commission, raise your hand. No shade if you haven't. That's okay. So it's a pretty popular, popular passage. 98% here knew what the Great Commission is just by saying it. And this is what you'd suspect amongst churchgoers in America. But in a recent poll done by Barna, a research group, 51% of churchgoers do not know what the Great Commission is. And even when these same people were polled and given four different passages to choose from with the text, they still cannot select what the Great Commission is. Now, it's troublesome because this is Jesus' last words. At least according to the book of Matthew, these are his last words to his people, us. And it's essentially the passage where he says, go and make more Christians. Go and make disciples. It's the requirement that Jesus puts on a disciple. It's, uh, it's rude in this word, evangelion. That's kind of my way of saying it. Meaning good news. It's the good news. It's the gospel. 
something we've talked extensively about in our series. And this passage is the passage on evangelism. And evangelism kind of gives you some, some butterflies if you're not used to sharing the good news. Well, according to a recent study done by that same group, 96% of millennials, and we're pretty much a millennial church, if you are born in 80 on, you're a millennial, sorry. I love being a millennial. Uh, but according to millennials, 96% of us believe that, the, that part of being a Christian is being a witness. Part of being a Christian is a witness. Now, of those, I believe 94% said that the most important thing a person could do in their life is to come to know Jesus. 74% believe that they're gifted in sharing about Jesus. And 86% they know, believe they know how to respond to questions of faith. So millennials, 96% believe they're supposed to be witnesses. 94% believe the most important thing you can do is to know Jesus. 86% believe they can answer questions of faith. And 74% believe that they are gifted at telling it. And here's the shocking part. But 47% believe that evangelism, that is a sharing of one's belief with a person of a different, different faith, is wrong. One out of two people think that it's wrong. That is, that proclaiming the good news of Jesus uncomfortable, but also unacceptable. One out of two people. And we can attest to this probably even within our own church. And I'm not going to poll us today, but we really do struggle with the idea of sharing our faith with people who do not know Jesus. What's gone wrong? How has the commission become optional? How is it that there's a command of Jesus at the end of the gospel narrative and we refuse to follow it? I believe it lies in what a professor theologian named Dallas Willard says is the omission in our commission. That is, in our commission, these final words of Jesus that really encapsulate everything we've learned in the book of Matthew, what have we omitted? That's what we want to find out today. What have we omitted in the commission? What's the omission in the commission? And to do that, we're going to look at Matthew 28 and the verses looking up to it. So if you're not in Matthew 28, you can turn there. Matthew 28 is the very last chapter. If you're in the book of Mark, just go one page back. So in the context of Matthew, Jesus has just been executed. He's been executed as an enemy of state. He's a public enemy. He's not executed by the religious. He's executed by the government. He is, in essence, lynched by the Jewish elite. He doesn't get a fair trial. And he's put up on a tree and hung there. Jesus, in the midst of the execution, gives up his spirit and goes to the grave. And that's where we find ourselves in the passage today, is his resurrection, his coming from the dead. That's what resurrection means. And the resurrection is the hope of Christianity. Paul says it this way, if Christ is not raised from the dead, we are to be pitied. We are to be pitied. If Jesus isn't alive, we need to stop coming to church. That's how important the resurrection is. But let me tell you, and Jerry can attest. Now, Pastor Jerry, you've been to the grave. Is he there? Okay, he's not there. So, Jesus is not there. The, uh, Joseph Smith is there. Buddha is there. 
But Jesus is not there. And that's the good news today. And I'm not going to get into that. I would love to get all in the mess of uh, resurrection today, but you know, I'm going to leave it there. Pastor Jerry already preached a lot of that. And so, but we're going to join Matthew in the narrative leading up to the Great Commission, which includes the resurrection. It includes the resurrection. And this narrative, Jesus, I'm sorry, Matthew is giving us two sets of people. If, you read, if you're reading along with Jiva today, he gives us two sets of people. That is the women and the guards. The women and the guards. These are two sets of people that are going to really highlight what our omission is in the Great Commission. They both experience something similar in this passage, but have entirely different responses to the resurrection of Jesus. First, both groups are confronted with the power of the resurrection. They all experience an earthquake, and they all see an angel, and they all fear him. This is verses 1 through 4. Both the women and the guards experience the earthquake. Both of them see him, the angel, the messenger of the Lord. Angels are just messengers. They're not some elite power, necessarily. They bring the message of God to people. And this is what happens here. He brings the message of the resurrection, the first telling of the good news that Jesus is alive. And in this moment, both groups experience that powerful moment. You see the women go there to visit the tomb. The guards are there to keep the tomb, assuming that his disciples will come rob uh, the body out of the grave. Now look at the verse. Uh, it says that the angel comes and he causes an earthquake earthquake and it causes the stone to be rolled away why did the angel remove the stone was he letting jesus out no he was letting them in the women meet jesus after they leave for galilee the angels roll back the tomb so the women can peer in you see jesus doesn't need someone to let him out jesus uses his servants to let people in he didn't need to be let out. He was letting them in on his story. You see, some of us are trying to help ourselves where we need Jesus to help us. Jesus doesn't need help getting out. You need help getting in. Amen? Some of us think in our moment of crisis, God's in a bind. When actually, he's just timing it to let you in. Just because the stone isn't rolled back yet in your life doesn't mean that God can't lift. It just means you haven't waited long enough. Some of us need to hear that today, and we're angry at God or we're disappointed in His ability, but maybe He hasn't rolled the stone back yet. Both the guards and the women saw the angel. Both the guards and the women reacted to that powerful moment. But the second thing they do, they both have a response to that resurrection. That's in verses 4-7. through seven. Upon encountering this powerful moment, there's a response. They both respond in a certain type of fear. The women experience this moment and their fear leads to reception. They receive the message from God's messenger. The guards, they fear, and they become like dead men. The women, they receive the message. And actually, they will discern it as from Christ and will respond eventually in obedience. The guards fall like dead men and can't receive the message concerning the risen Christ. And Matthew wants you to notice the irony that the man that's supposed to be dead isn't and the people guarding him are. You see, the resurrection of Jesus will cause some to life and some to death. Some of us respond with stiffness in our heart and will not respond to the resurrection. In fact, we get harder and we hate it more while others are caused to life and that new. The third thing, they're both told to do something. 
and they both obey a command. This is in verses 5 through 7, 9 through 10, and verse 13. The guards run to their bosses. They retreat in fear. They didn't hear the message of the resurrection. Instead, they go and relay the message to their people, and their people tell them to lie and deceive. To lie and deceive for cash. The guards are commanded to lie, and actually it's an incrimination against the disciples. It was illegal for you to grave rob. And so they're also setting up the disciples for problems. You find them in Acts later on where they're hiding out. They're afraid of the government. There is a rumor going around that they've stolen the body of Jesus. So the guards actually obey their rulers and incriminate the disciples. While the women, they receive essentially the same command twice. You can look at 5 through 7 and 9 through 10. They, in fear, their shock of that moment, receive the message of the resurrection and are commanded to do something. They are told by an angel to go. Relay the message that Jesus was alive to his people, to his disciples in Galilee. Then, as they went in obedience, Jesus meets them and says the same command again. And it's incredibly important to note that after the first victory, the ultimate victory, he relays his message first to women. This is purposeful in a patriarchal domination society where women were seen as property. Jesus chooses to reveal himself to women. They were the first proclaimers of the message. They were not the seminary grad. They weren't the pastors or elites. They weren't the people in power. But Jesus chose them to communicate it. And in a place and a time where women have been pushed aside, even in our church where we've realized that we've pushed women aside, and we confess that, Jesus has placed them in ministerial and massive opportunity to proclaim the gospel and share their gifts to the world. Jesus makes them the first missionaries of the resurrection. They are the first obedient on this side of the resurrection. The first people to obey were women. And I failed to do this. We failed to do this as a church. And hopefully in confession, we want to follow Jesus in that. And we want to be vulnerable and open to that. It's significant that the first deposit of the gospel is entrusted to women. I can't say it enough. And they obey. They do it. The guards receive their command, and they do it. The women receive their command, and they do it. Which leads us up to the omission in the Great Commission. Obedience. Obedience. It's what the Holy Spirit uses to drive the movement of Jesus in the world is obedience to Jesus' commands. Both sets understand they're supposed to obey. Both sets obey someone. And that's where we find ourselves, again, where we found ourselves at the beginning. The omission in the Great Commission is obedience. And Jesus addresses it. If you look at verses 16 through 20, and I'll just highlight it here. First He says, go. He tells them, as He similarly first commanded the women to go, move out from here. Then he says, make disciples. That is, bring others into his way. Bring others into the way of Jesus. Confessing him as Lord and ruler of all. Then he says, baptize them. The outward sign, the, the signpost to a transformed life. Pledging their allegiance to King Jesus. 
And then he comes to what I think is the omission. And then he says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Why do we think that the greatest thing for someone to have happen in their life is to know Jesus, and yet we think we don't have to live out evangelism? It is as though we've made the commands of Jesus optional. Obedience to Jesus has become an option. It's as though it must be clarified. Jesus is actually clarifying that everything I've said, you should actually obey. This isn't some YouTube channel where you get a good advice. This is Jesus telling you what to do. Far too often we see Jesus as a friend, but not as a king. We see him as Superman, but not the king. We see him as someone who provides magic gifts for us. We pray to him and he gives us things but not as the king. We see him as the person that forgives our sins, but not as the king. We see him as a get-out-of-hell free card, but not as the king. And yet here, Jesus states who he is. He says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me by the Father. So all authority from the far-reaching rings of Saturn all the way down to the White House claiming all sorts of authority, down to your home where you claim authority, to your cell phone, your laptop, and the inner thoughts of your being, Jesus says, I have authority. I have authority. To the height of heaven, to the crevices of hell, Jesus has authority. He has the right to tell us what to do, whether we want that or not. Jesus is saying, I am the king. Indeed, he's the friend, deliverer, provider, and salvation for us, but he's the king of all. He is the greatest friend. Because as the high and lofty king, he comes down to dwell with us. He is the great deliverer and the savior. But only because he's the king and he can forgive our trespasses. And looking back over the entirety of his teachings, and particularly here as the king, he expects his teachings not just to be swallowed up and eaten, but to swell in our hearts and produce obedience. The king's commission expects the obedience of the commissioned. The king's commission expects the obedience of the commissioned. So we have to ask, how has it become optional? How are we to obey his teachings, and how do we obey this particular teaching, that is, the commission? So how has it become optional? How has obedience become optional? And really, this is where we find ourselves, and we found ourselves for a while, but especially now in a post-Christian society, is that the world is discipling us more than we're discipling it. Despite being followers of Jesus, like instead like the guards relaying the rulers of the world tell us what is and isn't right. Some of us do a better job obeying the government than we do King Jesus. Some of us respond more quickly to a U.S. military draft than we would to go overseas and proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Some of us are more honest in our IRS taxes that we are honest in our personal dealings in life. Some of us are better at obeying our bosses than we are King Jesus. Some of us expect others to obey us better than we expect ourselves to obey Jesus. And that's where we find ourselves. The world has told us that our faith is inappropriate. The world has told us that it's not a big deal to sleep with a non-covenantal partner. The world is telling us and colonizing our minds and producing strongholds in our lives in a way that the teachings of Jesus may morph over time. Instead, like the women, we take Jesus at His word. We take His rules of His kingdom 
that give us the most life. And when he tells us to do something, we do it. It should be second nature. Almost a second nature if I spotted Fernando hiding out on Singleton off to the side waiting for me to pull up in my car going 45 and a 30 and I immediately slow down. <laughs> Fernando's a police officer. I love him. But we have better fast twitch to an officer than we do to King Jesus. That's the problem. We haven't realized the presence of His authority. Jesus tells us to do something. It's just as important. Some of us picture Him as some fairy king far off giving us a book and we just say, well, I just need a you know, every once in a while I need to do something about it. But this is as present and as imminent. He knows every heart desire and every brain thought that you have. And that means as quickly as we respond to an officer, it should be second twitch or fast twitch nature to us. It should just be immediate obedience. I'm not saying it's easy, but I am saying that's the kind of authority that he has. Further, we've applied personalized cookie cutters to the whole teaching of Jesus. We personalize our Jesus to fit our rule, our reign. When his agenda fits with ours, that's when we obey. But for somehow, somehow, some reason, we believe that our authority, our rule is better than his. So if they aren't optional, which they aren't, how are we to obey? How do we obey? You see in the last part of the Great Commission, his presence with and within us. In that final verse of Matthew, Jesus promises to be with us always. This is Matthew doing his literary genius here. At the beginning of Matthew, in chapter 1, verse 23, he said that Jesus would be Emmanuel. That is God with us. And then he takes the book in and he says, I'm going to be with you always. And he shuts the book. Just some cool, cool text there. But as we know in the story, the Spirit comes to live with His people. God, the Holy Spirit, comes at Pentecost. The gift that Jesus promised. has 14... Uh, John 14.26 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Romans 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of, of life has set you free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son, the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Here's verse 4. Here's what's important. He says, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, God sends His Spirit to produce the righteous requirement of the law within us. He causes righteousness within us. The Spirit of God, His eternal presence, is what produces life in accordance to what God called us to do. That which was impossible without His presence has been made possible by His generating of obedience within us. The second part, I think that how we obey is by abiding in Him. Now, it's a nice word that we don't really know what to do with sometimes, but it means that presence, getting up close to Him. But this is really where it's not passive anymore, but it's active Dallas Willard says this, Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. In fact, nothing inspires and enhances effort like the experience of grace. We need to understand that just because we have to fight and work and press into obedience does not mean that you're being legalistic. you got to fight the fight of faith. 
it's going to take some hard work. That doesn't mean that you're being legalistic. That doesn't mean that you're not living on grace. You're inspired by grace to work hard. I'm not encouraging you to have an entitlement attitude where if you obey, you'll get that girlfriend. Or if you obey, you'll get that good grade. Or if you obey, you'll be able to get that job. I'm saying today that God will generate obedience with you and produce the joy of keeping His law. That's the good news that Jesus gives us. And as for the commission, what does it look like to obey? What does it look like to obey this commission? If you remember all the way in the beginning of Matthew's series, you see a man named John, the prophet, comes on the scene and he's preaching one message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He gets locked up, eventually killed. Jesus takes that same message. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is killed, raises from the dead. You're given that same message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Pastor Soon Chan Ra says in his book, Many Colors, good news, at least in a Jewish context, would say this. Good news focuses more on the presence of Yahweh and His kingdom. For example, in Isaiah 52.7, with the declaration of good news, it says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Announcing peace and proclaiming news of happiness. And here's what the good news is. Our God reigns. Good news in the Hebrew context meant that God's reign was here. The exiles are encouraged by the promise that God is going to reign and rule and it will be demonstrated by His people. God's reign should not only be talked about, but demonstrated as well. See, we're proclaiming a good news that Jesus has come and made that kingdom a reality. And in this kingdom, the King forgives sins. And in this kingdom, He sins and takes in the outcasts and makes them family. He takes the misfits and makes them missionaries. He's the one taking every people group across the world and indiscriminately sharing His gifts abroad. In this kingdom, the good news is realized through His people making manifest the kingdom, the kingship of Jesus Christ. His people demonstrate the reign. You are the reign of God when you leave this place. People should peer in and say, they're treated equally. They're loved. They're giving to one another. They're forgiving each other. It should look radically different than the rain and the world outside. You are the reign of God. You are the kingdom of God displayed. And we're to obey this king. The promised king who rules and returns. And I want to end on this story and we're going to start coming down asking the band to come on up. It's this. Um, my good friend Chris Green, if you haven't met him yet, I love this dude. He's from Mississippi. Uh, I used to do ministry in Mississippi. And he was in my youth ministry there. And uh, Chris, I've shared the gospel with over time. And uh, through this series, even the way that I articulate the gospel has taken some, some shifts, just allowing the text to inform how I, I tell it. And I, on Wednesday night, I was telling him the gospel again. And in the past, he had said he wasn't ready yet, but now he was ready. And I was communicating what it was. And I articulated the kingship of God and how He brings chaos to peace and how He forgives those under His reign and brings them in as missionaries. And this is what... And at one point, I couldn't tell if Chris was listening because he was just looking at the ground drawing on the ground. He was drawing Bugs Bunny or something like that on the ground with some chalk. 
so I don't feel bad for not feeling like he wasn't listening to me. But I said, are you hearing me? And he says, yeah, I'm just processing how to teach other people this. When you understand that the king has died for you and then commanded you to do something, you obey. Hands down, we obey. When you believe and live according to Jesus' reign and that he forgives, you obeyed. We're called to obedience. All of us, through the way we act, live, think, breathe, are being obedient to someone. But who? You will obey your king, but you have to determine who it is. Bow your heads and pray with me. We're about to sing a song after we pray, but if during this time you want to have someone pray for you, or you want to make a decision to follow Jesus, if you want to make Him king of your life and your heart, receiving forgiveness of sins, maybe you're a Christian in here, and you're just tugged at the heart right now in the ways that you should obey, and you just want prayer for that. I'm going to have uh, Lisa and uh, Pastor Jerry will be up here at the front as well. If you want to just be prayed for during this song, you are welcome to come up. We're going to all stand. You barely see over everyone anyway, so no one's going to see you. But you're welcome to come and pray and choose to follow. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that you're the king. We thank you that you are generous, that you are patient, that you are high and lofty, yet low and near. We thank you that you've loved us unto death and risen to life to give us something we could never have. We thank you for the exciting mission of making our community of believers a picture and a glimpse in a war-torn society of what the reign of God looks like. I pray that as we walk from here, from our life groups to our workplaces, to the way that we engage on our phone, that we would live knowing that You're our King, being obedient to You, to whatever You say, allowing Your Spirit to generate obedience within us and making the hard effort of putting flesh to death and clothing ourselves in the wonder and the newness of life. Father, help us to listen and obey as your disciples. Those in here who haven't chosen to follow Jesus yet, Father, we ask you to pull them near, to make them into the missionaries you can use them to be. So, Father, we pray that you would use us as a church to bring much glory to our King. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to Mercy Street Church Podcast. Until we meet again, Shalom.